Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that won't tell you to smile. Today we have Zoe and Laura. We're going to be talking about emotional labor in the service industry. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> uh, talking about wages and tipping and harassment and all of that fun stuff that goes with it. Yes. Uh, before we get into that, we have a super smart, cool, fun guest joining us. Welcome, Charlotte. Yay. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk about all this stuff because yes. I think about it a lot. So, yeah, <laughs> um, fuck yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm not actually waiting tables right now, but um, I worked as a waitress for eight years. So this is pretty close to my heart. Um, first in D.C. and then here in New York. Um, so I dropped out of college at 19. And after that, I tried every combination of working full time, school part time, both part time. <laughs> work part-time, full-time school. But mm. honestly, for me, it ultimately just proved impossible because I can't focus on more than one thing at a time. Um, so now I'm going back to undergrad full-time at Brooklyn College. Um, and that is pretty intimidated. And uh, not really working feels weird sometimes. Um, kind of like a limb is missing because uh, restaurant work becomes such a huge part of your life. Mm. And um, hmm, I'm a socialist, which obviously, yes. right? <laughs> and... Um, I'm in DSA. I used to be the co-chair of North Brooklyn, um, but I'm slightly less involved right now. Mm. And I do also tweet. Yes. <laughs> and my <laughs> handle is, I, I'm just going to do my handle because whatever, that's what people do, right? Fuck yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It's mumble underscore sauce. Hell yeah. So hit me up. <laughs> hit her up. Fuck yeah. Um, yeah, we're all about tweeting and, and adding each other in a good way. <laughs> Um, yeah so so i'm so fucking stoked to have you on here um and you're gonna crush college don't even worry about it um sure (laughs) i feel that way you're very smart um but yeah so the service industry obviously has a ton of range you know i myself i've worked in fast food i started my first two jobs were in fast food i did ice cream scooping at this like little side stand and i worked at a subway also um I've worked in restaurants as like a hostess, busser, and server, and I've been in different receptionist situations. Uh, I was a receptionist at a yoga studio for a long time, and I've also been a receptionist at a fucking yacht club, which is, uh, I need to tell everyone that when we were preparing for this document, (laughs) Zoe (laughs) messaged me on our Slack and was like, Laura, what is a yacht club? Um, <laughs> is it a thing where people have yachts to make them part of a club or is it a club on a yacht? And I was like, great question. And then she said, what are even rich people? <laughs> and I think Actually, that I said, what the fuck are rich people? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's all good questions. But for clarification, it's a club of a bunch of douchey people who own yachts. Um, yeah. That one was a very uh, specifically horrific place because they didn't even allow women in the club until the late 80s. So the level of sexism ran so deep. 
Um, I've also been a valet, which is a really weird and fun service industry job. And I've been a grocery store checkout person, which I feel like in its own way was the more stressful of all of them, just because like everyone is so frantic when they're like done with their big shopping and stuff like that. So, I mean, all I'm trying to say is like, while all of these situations have their own flair and can make them unique, um, I think that specifically in the United States, when we have to adhere to this weird mantra of the customer is always right, there's this, there's so much commonality between every like aspect of the service industry. So I'm super excited for us to dive into this topic. Like obviously that mantra like lends itself to such hyper exploitation that I think, I think we're going to have a lot to say about this. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I've also worked uh, a wide range of service jobs, including in college, I worked um, at one of the colleges I went to. I worked um, in the dining hall, which Mm. is complicated because you're serving your peers. And that was when like I was going to school with people that were coming from a lot more wealth than I was. So it was Mm. just like not the cool thing to be like the one seen working in the dining hall. Um, And then now I work at a bar, which also has its own set of complications because your customers are just getting progressively worse and can't think throughout the night. So it's another really fun one. Yeah. um, I have like less variety. I have worked in a ton of places, but they were always kind of like upscale or niche. Like I worked in like a craft beer and fancy pizza place, which Mm. was actually honestly my best job because as far as like niche interest goes like those are less douchey honestly than wine which I think of all the beverage obsessions is the worst one (laughs) I think from like worst to best it goes like wine coffee oh no sorry cocktail wine coffee beer Mm. (laughs) because cocktail dorks are like the worst yes um yeah but so I've had like a bunch of kind of stuff like that and always like a little more like either hip or you just have to be a little more presentable um but every place has their own kind of inscrutable rules and power relations and like dynamics that it takes three weeks to learn. And then you're like, Oh, okay. I get how things go here. Sure. But yeah, you guys are totally right that it's the customer is always right. And, um, they're usually wrong. Honestly, (laughs) (laughs) usually not right. Usually being terrible. (laughs) Um, So just so that everyone knows what your kind of background is in this, can you talk a little bit more about your research on emotional labor in the service industry? Yeah, definitely. I'm still getting comfortable talking about it as something serious because I am still getting my undergrad. Mm. I love being a 28-year-old adult undergrad. Totally. (laughs) I know. Well, I love it and I hate it. But um, so I'm probably taking it way too seriously. But no, it's great. It's amazing. It's the way education should happen, I think. In a lot yeah, of yeah. And you know what? I can't say like enough good things, honestly, about like shout outs to the sociology department at Brooklyn College, because mm-hmm. like pretty much every one of my teachers has been like explicitly a Marxist. Yeah. Like, like number one, first day manifesto. And you're like, OK, I belong here. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, this is awesome. So basically... I'm studying the sociocultural and economic forces that are at play in particularly the tipped service industry. Hmm. And I'm focusing on servers probably because that's what I know. I know it doesn't represent sort of the really wide breadth of stuff and all their particular injustices. And there's a lot worse jobs to work in than serving. But um, 
basically my plan is to interview a bunch of servers from a few different restaurants. Um, I want to get kind of a range of I'm trying to come up with one of those alignment access memes yes. and try and get one from each cl- each quadrant. So like expensive to cheap, uh, Y-axis, yes. <laughs> X-axis, like hip, less hip, more family oriented, something like that. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, but basically, I found kind of a gap, actually, um, which is kind of a goldmine in academia. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, there's research about relationships between worker and customer and how that affects tips. But there's barely anything about the relationships between worker and worker, between worker and manager, and between worker and owner. Mm. And basically what I think is missing is the subjectivity of service workers themselves. Like nobody's really asking him, them how they feel and mm. why and how their job works. And um, I want to try and get at how that's constructed by, you know, everything. Um, so right now, like, I'm just in kind of a literature review phase. So I'm reading about some different things that I think will all kind of tie together in the end. Um, some like neo-Marxist labor process theory, the actual like economic structure of tipped wages, um, some labor movements and why they've worked and why they haven't. And then like my ultimate fave, social reproduction and emotional labor. Yeah. Which, yes. Ugh. God. So important. So good. I'm fucking like stoked for you because I feel like, I don't know, this is me being like a mega nerd, but like feeling like you're on the precipice of knowledge in that way can be really fun anyway. (laughs) I mean, something I've been noticing and in one hand, I'm like, oh man, people are getting to this before me. But on the other hand, I feel like I've seen a lot of writing and podcasts and um, like talk around Uh, social reproduction Mm. and I think this actually hasn't dropped yet but I went to the book launch um, feminism for the 99% a manifesto yes Yes. and it was like incredible the like talk Um, and I have read the whole thing and it's definitely about these emerging sites of struggle that are in industries or areas of both waged and unwaged work that are really where like the revolution's gonna come from. We have these totally amazing, powerful forces that we just haven't harnessed yet. So mm. that's pretty inspiring. Hell yeah. I just ordered a copy of that, so I'm really excited. Yes. But um, Charlotte, I was looking at the like PowerPoint that you sent us um, like just now, and I saw that it said sexual harassment was reported five times at the rate of any other industry within the service industry. And also the service industry is 70% women, Neither of which surprised me, but both of which are statistics I wasn't acutely aware of. Mm. (laughs) Um, So I don't really have a specific question. I was just kind of mad to know that. Yeah. This shit is so fucked up. (sighs) I I can't tell you the amount of people I know, myself included, who have been like groped, harassed, or drugged in this context alone. And yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, same. mm -hmm. Really dark. Um, Yeah. um, Oh, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. I want to say that I got those. I like research so much. I want to say I got those statistics from the Economic Progress Institute, whatever that like uh, very liberal think tank is. Mm. Um, (laughs) But yeah, and also, I mean, like Board of Labor statistics like show this too. And another interesting thing is um, maybe we can talk about this later, but um, the tipping lends itself hugely to wage theft, right? Mm. Because it's not really super clear, you know, you're making your base wage and then you're getting tips from the customer via your employer. 
And there's a lot of things that are wage theft that people don't know, like um, being overcharged for a meal, having to do a certain amount of side work or whatever kind of like side labor you have to do that's not just customer service that you're supposed to be compensated for. Um, and just like, it's so confusing that people don't know, like when they're being exploited and wage theft, I don't know the statistics, but happens like at a much larger percentage in the service industry too. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I just yeah. want to add, because I'm still mad about it, that last weekend, <laughs> our toilet flooded really bad. It wasn't just in the bathroom. It was like the whole back hallway of my bar was like a giant puddle of like sewer water, um, which took me a, a while to mop up. It was disgusting. It ruined my um, millennial pink sneakers. Mm. Um, and also, there, it was a slow night, so I didn't make any tips. Well, very little tips. And I was thinking of asking the owner, like, because we have people that come in and clean. That's not specifically part of my job, but I had to because it was during my shift and they weren't there. Um, but I know that another one of my coworkers before had to clean up um, uh, a nice word for there was poop all over the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice word for sure. I can't think of any good way to say this. No, but ask the owner, like, hey, can I, you know, have extra, like, can I get paid extra? I had to like clean up, you know, shit. And the owner was like, what? No. Mm. So anyway, still just mad about it. Uh, everyone should know. Yeah. Fuck everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is kind of like switching gears slightly, but I'm, I'm really interested in how service workers can function as an extension of sex work. And I guess what I mean by this is particularly when I worked as a server, the other servers and I had our own specific clients sometimes and they would request us and tip us far beyond what is common um, for the understanding that we would flirt with them throughout their meal. And I think there's a specific type of fetishization, particularly among older men, that they can buy this type of gratification that comes from perceiving someone as being sexually interested or sexually available to you. Um, and I'm just curious, like, have y'all thought about this too? And I'm curious about hearing your thoughts because in the same way that sex work can provide monetary stability for folks, when you're a server and you're able to make up to like $200 more per night if you participate in this type of emotional labor, there's part of me that's like, fuck yeah, let's milk rich white dudes for what they're worth. And then <laughs> on the other hand, I'm just like, this just adds to the perception that rich white dudes can hit on whoever they want and get away with it and perpetuate sexual harassment. Um, and I guess I just wanted to like open up this specific part of emotional labor, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, and this is another thing I can kind of speak to. But in a lot of like online chat or cam work, as well as with um, escorting, which I can't speak to as much, but they want like what's referred to as the girlfriend experience, which means they're, they're not just trying to buy your time or labor, which is all you're offering, but they want to be able to buy like affection and feel like it's genuine. Like clients will ask, you know, what brought you here? Like to the chat sites or like, what are you looking for? Which is like mon your money, give me your money. Um, <laughs> but they want you to tell them like some like sweet nothings about like why you really want to talk to them. Cause they're so great. Mm. Um, and like, I think it is similar there, people will ask like, oh, how's your night going? Or like, you know, why aren't you smiling more? Like, why do you look so down? And I'm like, it's 3 a.m. on a Friday night and I'm like stuck in a bar. Like, why, sh <laughs> why would that be happy? Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, just just mostly tagging on in agreement with you that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I once got a negative review on Yelp that was very obviously me. And <laughs> they were saying that I seemed like I was in a bad mood. Um, and I was like, you know, maybe if you'd been nicer to me and tipped better, I would have been in a better fucking mood. Right. Um, yeah. And definitely like that kind of sexualized, oh, you're here to serve me is is a thing. But I mean, to move it beyond gender, although sure. like obviously that can never be removed from the equation. Um, yeah. I think that emotional labor changes how you think and then consequently how you think of yourself. And um, I think one of you mentioned like everyone wants something different from you. Everyone has a different expectation of what kind of emotional and effective labor they want from you. Um, and in my experience, they either want you to pretend that you're on the exact same level and you're like, you're just, we're just doing each other a favor. Like I'm getting some money and you know, you're getting some food and this is totally normal. And that erases the economic aspect of it. Um, or on the other hand, there, I, this is the worst kind in my opinion. They want to remind you every single fucking second that your tip is dependent on being subservient. Yes. Um, and you wind up, I'm sure that y'all can relate, like having a just a routine for all of it. Like, you know how to handle it instantly. Yeah. Like you hate it, but you know how to, to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, should I go on? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And I think, so like based on that, right, these are all interpersonal relationships. Like whether you want it or want to see it that way or not, it, they just are. Yeah. So all these negotiations you're doing about how to talk and act, think and feel, they're, a part of your work that's like totally erased um and actually before I was even like doing this research what got me interested in it is I did this in-depth interview with my friend Maureen who was a barista at a fancy coffee chain and like coffee places are their own super weird can of worms but she's super smart and she said some really smart stuff about this um so I might just quote her a little bit yeah Um, She said, honestly, I don't know what myself is. There's so many different faces. The one the public sees, the one my coworkers see, my bosses, they're all different and they're all not really me. And she was talking about how you change yourself. Um, And she noticed she began to talk and act differently. She found herself being sillier and less articulate because she wanted to seem approachable, um, which is maybe different than some other people's experiences. Um, But she said that the customer expects you to be friendly and approachable. And if you talk like a white collar professional, that actually comes off badly because Mm -hmm. they want to think of you as a friend. So the line at the place she worked was that you were there to make the customer's day better for five minutes. So right. Like that's your job. And um, customers made a lot of assumptions about the people who worked at that place. And one customer asked, um, her, what else do you do? Which has definitely happened to me. What else? <laughs> and an older man told our other friend, um, Ava, that she should go to school. <laughs> oh my God. And Zoe actually knows her. She has a master's in media studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, we, I, she and I have um, complained about service stuff together before. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. And <laughs> yeah. she's super smart on this stuff, too. It's like, yeah. it's so funny. Um, And I think also a lot of this is based on appearance, which Mm -hmm. is another thing we can probably all identify with. And Maureen was saying when she used to dye her hair green, (laughs) a guy around her age asked her what her art was. 
Um, right. Because people want like an artist to serve them, right? Like a Bushwick artist. Right. <laughs> and they just didn't want to think that this was the barista's only job because they don't see it as a real job. Um, oh, and you know what I'm realizing? I said to remove gender from the equation and then every example I just gave was a man. So <laughs> maybe not. You know, yeah. it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to take the patriarchy out of it sometimes. But no, I see what you were saying and I think um just to like speak to that last point more I've I to this day the the highest paying job I've ever had was when I was a, a server and um like I was a PhD student, I am at a director level of a nonprofit now, and it's just like, for fucking what? Like, when people ask me that shit, or when, like, I think about how much more, like, economic freedom a lot of my friends who are in the service industry still, like, have, and not to say that it's, like, not to glorify it in any way, because it obviously, as we're talking about, has so much shit going on with it, but at the same time, like to suggest that working in the, the service industry is somehow a bad idea or like that someone isn't smart for doing that feels really ridiculous to me and like feels like everyone has a fucking martyr complex or some shit because it's like those jobs pay well. You can if that's what you need, that's a smart decision to go into. Um, if, if you have the ability and skill set to be hired at a place that like does pay very well in those circumstances, like that's, that gives you the most freedom to do what you want with the rest of your time more than other jobs. Like you have more ability to work less hours if you're at like a really good place like that. I don't know. It's just like, I just kind of want to like push people <laughs> when they say this shit. Cause it's just like, what? What makes you think that like the inherent trajectory should be like go to school and work at this like business that you can mm -hmm. then afford to come here? Like what makes you think that that's like the fucking way? Like that's just as toxic as literally all of the other things. Every oh. job is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think that comes out a lot in kind of like the negative way that even other service workers will refer to somebody as a lifer, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with, like, much older folks. Yes. Um, they are fucking tough as shit, yes. and this is the choice that they've made, like, how they want to make money. And like you said, I feel like it's going to be a long time until I make as much money as I did waiting tables from anything else. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, then you have, like, the slow season, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, all that money you've been spending left and right <laughs> yeah. is, like, not there anymore. Totally. So, yeah. So, the next question I had is, like, specific to the more, like, I don't know, what would a traditional emotional labor look like uh, so maybe just scratch my thought process there but either way I've never worked as a bartender or at a bar um, but I and I know Zoe does now and other folks in my life have described that dynamic specifically as much more listening to the other person's problems and providing more of like a therapy role for folks um, what do we think creates this dynamic and I think it's interesting because like, of course, there's a lot going on with that that I want us to dive into. But then what I was also thinking of is like, 
is it inherently a problem for people to have someone to come to and talk to outside of a traditional therapy session? Like when does it become a problem? And how can people in the service industry navigate when they aren't able to provide that emotional service? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I don't think I have a really good answer, but um, just speaking from experience, I am asked to give a lot of dating advice while I'm working, um, often from men who want like, you know, straight men who want like a woman's opinion of like their situation. Um, But it depends. There's also regular customers who, you know, come in pretty much whenever I'm working and like we do build up a rapport and like it's fun to have someone to talk to while you're working because it can get boring otherwise. Right. So, I mean, it really it's pretty nuanced. It really depends on the situation, on the person. Can they read social cues? Do they know when I'm busy and need to work and when I want to talk? Or are they just like relentlessly trying to talk at me while I'm trying to work? Mm. Yeah, like I've definitely, I definitely think that the bartender relationship is different. It encourages more like regulars. And I've often heard from the bartenders at my job that like they're jealous that we have somewhere to go to like get away. Mm. Like if I don't want to deal with someone, I just like hang out in the back yeah, <laughs> and kind of hide for a little bit. Um, but they're trapped behind the bar. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I guess like your question about when it does become a problem, I think it becomes, I'm actually pretty easygoing when it comes to service. Like at a certain point, I'm just kind of like, there's some people that I like and want to chat to. I'm a naturally very chatty person. And I kind of learned to make my personality work. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm kind of sassy. And a certain type of person loves that. Sure. <laughs> like, they love to, like, be insulted as a joke. So I try and make that work for me. Yes. But um, one thing is, like, when you're not able to provide that emotional labor, um, it goes back to sort of the idea that I was maybe talking about earlier that um, that at a certain point you have to manufacture that feeling for yourself. Like, you know, you don't have enough energy mentally or emotionally to deal with this, but you just like have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this idea of de-skilling labor, which I think was, I think it was Michael Burroway, but don't like quote me on that. Um, it was initially applied to factory work like the kind of stuff where, you know, as things become more um, specialized and the division of labor becomes more like precise and you're just kind of doing like one thing at a time, it like takes the, um, like the intellectual aspect out of it. You're like thinking about less. And I think what winds up happening is um, when it's applied to emotional work, you're actually kind of de-skilling yourself. Like you don't have as much energy to, do the kind of like necessary emotional management Mm -hmm. that like you need in your private life. So you're kind of like seeing it all like work. And I mean, I know at the end of a shift, I just want to like sit with my drink (laughs) alone and look at my food for like my food and my phone for like 20 minutes Yeah, and like not interact. Yeah, totally. So one thing is like, I feel like everyone develops their like coping mechanisms what they have to do to be able to like do that kind of work every day and everybody has different things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a service that people I think also rely on. Right. I think it says something about our society in some ways that like 
get, getting help through the traditional avenues of a therapist are not accessible to everyone. Um, it's also super stigmatized. And so what's less stigmatized are these people who possibly often have like alcoholic tendencies, um, will continue to like go to these same places too. And so like it, is like this very specific dynamic that I think also is an issue with our larger society's health system, right? Like it doesn't deal with addiction, right? And it doesn't deal with um, speaking about mental health and like providing mental health on like a regular basis to everyone um, or mental health services rather to everyone. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I just have been thinking about it a lot because I don't know what the answer is right of like I'm not stigmatizing people who possibly need that but it's also so much Mm -hmm. pressure on the service worker in that situation yeah that's definitely an interesting point and I wasn't really thinking of it that way I mean we're all just so starved for emotional connection I think yeah that on both ends you can like sometimes kind of find that um in our everyday interactions, like so much is automated and mm-hmm. so much, you know, there's an app for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there's not quite an app. Actually, there is a therapy app, but there's not Talk really. Talkspace. <laughs> Sponsor <laughs> us. I've honestly like, <laughs> I have a friend too that worked for, which I don't, I can't see that. But like, that's, that, that is interesting to me that people are kind of forced to find it through other avenues. So you can't always like... You know, I can identify, I can relate to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so let's talk about tips because there's a lot going on with tips in the service industry. Um, so, of course, having the direct outcome of your income being related to how you treat a customer creates a super big imbalance in power. Um, I feel like there's an inherent threat every time a customer is a dick. It's like, how are you going to respond to this? Choose wisely because your income depends on it. Um, And that makes me think about like, what would we want the service industry to look like under socialism? And then also barring full-blown socialism, do we think it would be better to move to the European model? Um, You know, because of course the other side of this problem is that It offloads costs from the employer to common people. So across class, people have to pay the wages that the employer chooses not to. And this affects people in lower classes disproportionately and widens inequality across the spectrum. Um, So I do feel like there, right, it's another another two-parter question, um, but I just feel like I don't know what makes the most sense in this way and and I do think that there is something that shifts not only when we when we take it out of the hands of people and back into the employer, it puts the employer at more responsibility, um, puts the capitalist class more at responsibility, but it also um, provides a little bit more security in the customer is always right mantra, right? Like people will from the United States who travel elsewhere will say like, oh, the service is not that good. But it's like what you, what you've been trained to get in the United States is in a lot of ways like unreasonable. And so like, I think this kind of taps into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really tricky because I think if you'd asked me like maybe even like four years ago, 
when I was making bank at my favorite job, I would have been totally against doing away with tipping. Just kind of this idea that like, well, how could we ever get out of it? Right. I'm going to go make like 15 or even $20 an hour when right now I'm making like 35 or whatever. And I also like for a while, there was something attractive about the idea of the hustle and how hard I worked was directly tied to my income. So like if it was a slow night, I was kind of like, well, I didn't work that much. And if I was busting my ass and things were a mess, at least at the end of the night, I was getting like a big chunk of change. Mm -hmm. And so in a way that makes a certain amount of sense, right? Like um, you are producing something, you're producing an experience for someone else and you are seeing the fruits of your production, I guess. Mm. Um, And so I don't want like my work or whatever to come off as an anti-tipping manifesto. because the end goal is to abolish work altogether. Right. right? <laughs> but I, I think that you're right that it creates this weird rent seeking relationship between server and owner. It's like almost futile um, in a way. Totally. Right? Like because you're paying them. Well, you're not paying them. Well, they're paying you not enough for you to have like the privilege of going there to make your money. Right. And it's your money. But it's coming from the customer. It's not coming from the owner. So that really absolves them from a lot of responsibility. And you get treated kind of like a contractor. Um, And, yeah, so while I'm not, like, on the side of people who are, like, I'm not tipping because (laughs) tipping is messed up. Like, no, you shouldn't be, like, oh, the workers are fuck, The owners are fucking the workers over, so I'm going to, too. Right, right. So, honestly, I don't have a clue what a little what a good solution would be without full socialism or like what it would look like under socialism. But I guess one of my goals is to try and figure that out by talking to other service workers who I think would, you know, once you sort of have your eyes open to the dynamics of the situation might be able to collectively come to a solution and organize around that. Cause I don't think typical union organizing works for the service industry because of what you just, we just have been talking about of how like, it seems like a pretty beneficial relationship in the end. Mm. Um, and that flexibility too is so like attractive. Um, but yeah, it, because of tipping, your income is unstable. Your employment is super precarious. They can fire you at the drop of a hat. Right. And there's also a lot more wage theft because it's so confusing. Um, there's a lot of incentive to like not make a fuss. Right. So that, I feel like I didn't really answer the question, but again, it's like so complicated. Yeah, no, I think you did. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It is really complicated. And like, it also depends on the season because where I'm working now, there's a big yard. So when it's nice out, the yard's full of people and those are all more people that are buying drinks. And over the winter, it's been so slow. I'm making like maybe a third of what I was making when it was nice Mm -hmm. out. Yeah, um, I actually really like the bar that Zoe works at, <laughs> and precisely because I can, like, go outside and chain smoke all winter. Oh, not winter, summer. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... Yeah, luckily, Charlotte's amongst the well-behaved smokers of the bar. There's also, like, a big uh, alignment of dudes who... We have to close the yard at 2 a.m. because of um, noise ordinances and neighbor complaints, and if I go outside and tell them the yard's closed, they just won't come inside. They're just like, no. And just, Ugh. like, will blatantly look at me and be, like, we're not doing that. And I have to go get the bouncer. And, like, they'll only go inside when, like, this big man comes uh. and says, go inside. And, yeah. But 
Charlotte's never been one of those. Just somehow. <laughs> I hope not. I've definitely <laughs> been pretty drunk there. So I wouldn't be surprised if I like lost my mind and suddenly <laughs> was that person. Never but, when I was there, at least. Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I love it. So any, I think, I think this is a gendered thing a little bit. Uh, at least, no, this is a gendered thing, but like the, I mean, I think any woman who's fucking walked down the street has had the experience of being told to like smile baby or whatever the fuck like makes me want to uh. punch someone in the face. Um, so my question is, do we think that the smile baby vibes is generationally being pushed out at all? I find that when I'm out with friends, we try to like comfort servers who seem to be having a bad day or generally meet folks where they're at. And I don't know if that's because I have great friends who aren't dicks and and majority of us have also like spent time in the service industry or if we think that this generation feels less entitled to that weird power dynamic. Yeah, I think that's another thing that goes back to tipping. And like there's definitely customers who are just always super nice and friendly towards me and like their tips remain consistent, um, consistently generous, um, which also is a lot of people that have, have, or currently work in service. Like at the bar, there's several restaurants on our block and all of those workers when their places close, we're like kind of a late night place and they'll all like come to where we are, um, and like hang out at the bar with us. I mean, so I think it just comes with different expectations of the dynamic, um, And this kind of reminded me, Charlotte mentioned getting a bad Yelp review. Um, One of my really good friends um, works in service and recently had a customer email her boss after their meal and said, like, we just didn't like our server's face. And the place she works, the kitchen is downstairs and there's usually busboys, but there weren't that night. So she was like running up and downstairs, like delivering bringing food to tables and then also people were upset that she wasn't like running to the top of the stairs and like smiling when she placed the food down. Um, So (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think there's a big culture of like people have very just unrealistic expectations of what the actual job of the server is, which is the bringing you your food part, not the also necessarily smiling the whole time part. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I love the dynamic. I actually kind of love the dynamic of going somewhere after work where you can kind of just shit talk with somebody who's like coming to the end of their shift, even though you're already done. Mm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think I agree. Our generation is forced more into precarious, low paid, exploitative labor in general. So Mm -hmm. I think even if you haven't worked in service, maybe we feel a little more empathy for service workers. Totally. But I think people, especially boomers, <laughs> sorry, are like, how hard could it be? But it's like so hard while at the same time being super mind numbing. So I know whenever I go into a restaurant or whatever, I get what I call service industry anxiety. And I can't help but like looking around, figuring out what people's sections are, if the manager is on the floor, like if there's a wait list and we need to like speed things up, mm. what tables need busting, like who's having a bad day. And I tend to like kind of, eavesdrop and zone out (laughs) totally and so my boyfriend or whoever will not be getting all of my attention (laughs) yeah that's super hard um yeah so when I was looking through kind of the information you sent us it seems like an underlying question with your research is about creating a potential new model for collective organizing in the service industry um 
So I know you don't have all the answers yet. You're still like kind of working on this large project, but can you talk more about like what you think it might, this might mean in terms of organizing? Yeah. You know, I'm going to actually start with an anecdote, I think about something that got me interested in all of this. Yes. So, yeah. So there was um, this ballot initiative in DC, um, like resolution 77 that took away the tip credit that allows employers to pay tipped workers less. And in DC, they actually get paid three eighty nine an hour, which is one of the lowest like nationwide. I think the, the minimum wage for servers federally is not much less than that. And I know in New York, it's like pretty good now. I think when I left, it was like eight fifty or something. Yeah, it's um, I think it's nine now or I make nine. So, yeah, it's like which makes a huge difference because when it bumped up, I like noticed it pretty quickly. Although, of course, then the management made a bunch of adjustments that um, totally negated all of that. But mm. <laughs> I won't get into that. Yeah. Um, and what was interesting is there was tons of opposition and it was from servers and bartenders primarily. And they were organizing under the slogan of like, hashtag save our tips. Um, and it got to the point where um, like, they were wearing buttons that save, that mm. said like, save our tips, ask me about like, resolution 77, like, actually advertising to the customers to vote against it. And this was obviously pushed by the owners and managers. But like, there was really this sense that like, it's hard to say no to people who are like, this is what will be good for me. Right. Right. And I actually did a little survey about this, just like a project for class. Um, and people in DC were overwhelmingly like in opposition to making the full minimum wage because they, I mean, they answered like, yes, I think I'll make less money. Yes. I think people will tip less. Yes. I think that places are going to have to shut down. Like, you know, all this stuff that is actually not super reflected in the statistics from places that do have like a flat minimum wage. Um, it's hard because there hasn't been like a lot of like transition to look at, but like people still tip. Yeah. And th like they just still do. So that's like kind of a fallacy, but you don't want to like not trust workers who just want to make more money. But anyway, like, <laughs> I just think there's some misconceptions and I don't want to sound condescending, but I think we need a little bit of like consciousness raising. Um, and I think often if you're working at like a kind of cushy place, you're not thinking about like the Applebee's waitress, right? Mm. You're not thinking about, you know, the nail salon workers who could maybe get like, you know, shoehorned into this and totally get ripped off by their employers. Like there's a lot of other tipped professions too. Right. Um, so that's like what kind of got me interested in it was the opposition to this. And what's interesting is it actually passed with unsurprisingly, um, most of the people against it being from richer places mm. <laughs> and the people for it being from poorer places. Um, and the city council actually repealed it. Oh my God. So yeah, repealed like a democratically voted on ballot initiative. Um, you know, and this was, the, the campaigns were funded by all the like usual suspects and conservative money and um, God, I can't remember the name of it, but whatever horrible restaurant lobby <laughs> mm. exists. So like, there's just this thing where, you know, you're kind of, because of your 
experience, you're forced into aligning with the capitalists. Right. And not with workers at large. So you see, you know, like if I made $15 an hour, that wouldn't be good for me. But it might be good for the general idea that everyone deserves the same kind of compensation for their labor. So I think, I don't know, it's difficult. I think it would require getting, besides just like people advocating for themselves and their workplace, like unionizing is great, but I think it would have to be something that is cross-class, um, cross-profession. But I don't really know. Yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't think there's, there's definitely examples of, I've seen some coffee shops um, unionizing, like one by one. Um, and that's gone pretty well. But that's, you know, that's a little different because it, they still have to make minimum wage. Baristas usually do. I think the rule, at least in New York, is that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. If you're a counter worker, it's a little different. So I know that you've like done some work on differentiating between emotional labor and emotional management. And I thought that was really interesting and was wondering if you could share more with us about that. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't say I've done some work more as like tweeted about it. That's some work. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think I get a little annoyed with the overuse of emotional labor. Mm. I think, you know, I don't think language should be like, it doesn't have to mean one thing. Things change. Um, it's useful. But I think when it got to the point where we're referring to emotional labor as the fact that you're always the one who has to pick the restaurant when you go out to eat with your boyfriend, it kind of devalues the term emotional labor, which might be kind of a controversial thing to say. But the person who coined the term is Arlie Hochschild in this book, The Managed Heart, which is like super great. Um And she describes it as the management of feeling to create a publicly observable facial and bodily display in the workplace, Mm. the standards of which are often set by the employer. In order to produce the desired state of mind in others, the worker must induce or suppress feeling in an effort to change their own state of mind. So that really like kind of sums up a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And she makes this great point that it's not that emotional management is necessary the necessarily the problem like there's stuff that you have to do that's just falls to women mostly of course which is the point but there's stuff that could actually be like joyous emotional like work i guess that like goes on more as a gift between two friends as more of a way to like manage some sort of collective yeah um and so sometimes i think that like using that word too much takes the work part of it out of it mm. um, because you're changing your own state of mind in order to create the desired state for the employer and the customer. And that's being exploited for a profit. And so I think that's a little bit unique, but of course like capitalism bleeds into everything. So right. then people in your organizing spaces or your friendships, like start to expect that kind of work from you without pay. And then it's like, okay, <laughs> but I, I think recently it kind of controversially um, Arlie Hochschild actually like wrote a little op-ed where she was like low key mad <laughs> about the use of emotional labor. And some people like pushed back on that. Mm. Um, but maybe I just stand for her too much and I'm like 
no. (laughs) (laughs) We all have those people. I don't know. I can't say one way or another. I haven't read her shit, but I was just really interested in that too. I had never really heard of that distinguisher. Yeah. I mean, the language has evolved, but that's like, you know, how it was coined. And she wrote about this. The subtitle of it is the commercialization of human feeling, which kind of says a lot about what the book is about. And she wrote, she's a sociologist and she wrote about, um, gosh, flight attendants, which was kind of the perfect example because they're expected to be perfect in what seems like the most stressful job. I took a flight recently and I was just like, oh my God, you're like pushing carts up and down this like tiny space and you have to be sweet and everybody is mad on a plane always. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Very real. I could not do it. Um, well, you had also brought up another amazing author, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich. And I know that like you had kind of brought it up when we were off air and I thought it was funny as well. And it, you should totally share it with everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I was like, can we take a break? And it was partially because I wanted to smoke a cigarette and I mean, I've been smoking forever and it's awful and all that stuff and I shouldn't do it. But a lot of it had to do with the service industry because you can like you're so stressed and you need that cigarette after even if they don't like give you a break. And so Barbara Ehrenreich in Nickel and Dimed when she was um, working at a very low paid restaurant, uh, she was complaining to one of her fellow servers that she didn't understand how everyone could go so long without food, which I'm sure we all relate to that, like being starving and not allowed to eat well and she said the her co-worker replied well i don't understand how you can go so long without a cigarette in a tone of reproach because work is what you do for the other smoking is what you do for yourself i don't know why anti-smoking crusaders have never grasped the element of defiant self-nurturance that makes the habit so endearing to its victims as if in the American workplace, the only thing people have to call their own is the tumors they are nourishing and the spare moments they devote to feeding them. Oh my God. <laughs> Which That's is so dark. Good. What the fuck? Yeah. So, but as I affectionately like to call her Babs, who's been fucking Babs. up a little bit online. Yeah, she's I, Yeah, I like, I just think that she, she like, doesn't get it and is such a weird tweeter and like (laughs) very true yeah but I still think a lot of valuable things yeah Babs my girl yeah we're gonna just hold on to the really crucial part of of the literature that Barbara has added to and try to not hold on to the tweets right now (laughs) yeah critical critical support yes exactly (laughs) Um, and then we were thinking as it's like time for us to kind of close things out. Um, I know we usually try to end things on like a little bit of a positive note. And so I guess like, can you talk about the things, the positive aspects of the service industry? Yeah. I mean, I also don't have to start with this because I'd like to hear about like maybe y'all's experience of solidarity kind of solidarity feels with your coworkers, mm. um, I so I um, in the different ones didn't have too much solidarity feels. 
uh, I guess when I was serving in a restaurant was maybe the most. Um, also, valeting was a lot of solidarity because it's like, it's just a bunch of you running around with like these fucking super expensive cars. And like the conversations that go around that are, you know, pretty interesting and fun. But I feel like for some reason I've kind of been in situations where I don't know why people were just kind of like elitist in their own ways or like didn't want to have solidarity in those ways um, for some of for some of my experiences at least. Yeah, I feel like at my current job, actually one of the reasons I'm not thrilled with it is that there definitely is solidarity that I don't really feel part of because they've all been working together like since the bar opened, um, which is only a couple of years, but I'm like the newcomer in the past year. So I'm not like, I haven't been like welcomed into the circle fully. So like m- m- for the most part, they're nice to me, but I don't feel as much in that. Actually, the most I felt kind of like workplace solidarity was when I was doing retail, which is kind of its whole other thing to talk about, but a lot of customer service. Um, but I worked at REI and there was definitely more like, cause we had a break room and everyone would just be in the break room, like talking about our worst customers. And mm. it definitely, um, yeah, I mean, it helps workplace morale so much when you just have people to like shit talk to all the horrible things that you realize <laughs> do to workers. Yeah, shit talk is definitely like a bonding experience. Um, and maybe it's because I've worked in these restaurants and also there are two places I worked at for like around three years. So that's like, I relate to the feeling of a newcomer because you're kind of new until someone replaces you as right. like the new girl. <laughs> um, and once you're in kind of like there's clicks for sure. And once you're in whatever click, you're like, you know, you you probably aren't as sensitive to the feelings of people that are quote new and you there is the negative shit talking where you're like oh my god this person can't get anything right like they're messing with my tips you know I've worked in tip pool places which I greatly prefer honestly Mm. and so maybe that's where the solidarity comes in because when I've worked in places that were tip pool everyone is kind of dependent on each other and it is an ecosystem and I really like that because there's no like your tables even if you have a section it's like okay everyone can help everyone yeah and so that's the example of a good positive environment um but i i did also work somewhere that was super awful and like very corporate and like two floors humongous people would line up outside for brunch at literally 8 a.m because i guess it was on like best thing i ever ate once and they had like a Oh my god good brunch menu except that the food was like always cold and late and like not that good oh my god um yeah <laughs> i think i actually recently had a lawsuit filed against them uh, <laughs> by servers it's founding farmers in dc no one goes there <gasps> oh my god <laughs> i've been there many times oh really? I, I used to live in dc before i moved here oh me too Same. yeah and yeah anyway Sorry. i was right near where i went to school Oh, so you must have gone to GW. I went to Corcoran. Oh, word. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I worked there when I was actually not doing anything else, like not even taking community college classes. And they totally encouraged this, like, 
competition, they would post our tip percentages on the wall. No. Like ranked. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. That played and so, yeah. <laughs> but now I got negative. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about how, like, you kind of get the secret language and lingo with your coworkers. And, like, there is kind of this, like, collective experience that with any profession, you're like, oh, these people understand exactly what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing that's been cool is you wind up making friends with people you'd probably never run into in real life, like um, across class boundaries and also just like different interests, like people that I'm like, man, we have nothing in common. And yet, like, I love to hang out with you and drink. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually probably one, but that feeling of family is often like exploited, I think, by owners. Um, like, I definitely know that you feel a sort of like responsibility to everybody and you probably shouldn't. You find yourself doing stuff that's not really your job, or at least I did. Like, I don't even take this like as it's sort of grievance, but I definitely was the person who watered the plants at my last job, <laughs> like changed the water in the plants. And somebody joked when I came in, they were like, oh, my God, they thought that just happened by magic. But it turned out it was you. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. Can I plug a movie really quick? Hell, yeah. Yeah. This is like a movie that is criminal. Oh, that that (laughs) movie. Um, This I feel like this movie was criminally underlooked. It didn't get a wide release. Um, It's called Support the Girls. And I highly recommend it. It's on Hulu, I think, for free. Hmm. and it's called Support the Girls. And it's about women um, in the middle of nowhere, Texas, working at kind of a Hooters-esque, quote, restaurant. Mm-hmm. And it's about the disastrous day sort of um, that this one manager has to deal with. It's not like, it's not like anti-capitalist politics, right? Sure. But it does sort of like show that um, the inner workings of a restaurant in a way that I had never seen before. Like, Mm. I was maybe a little high the first time I saw it, (laughs) but I wept for like a half hour just because the opening of it was like setting up a restaurant. And I was like, I've never seen this before. Um, You are talking to the right crowd for that. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, oh my God, it was so good. And I like it. And one other thing that it, have you guys seen, um, oh my God, why can't I remember the name of this right now? Crap. Um, Working Girls, Mm-mm. another great film um, by the same director who made Born in Flames, which is this crazy, like, revolutionary feminist, like, epic. Um, but it's about sex workers in um, New York City and, like, that do their thing out of, like, a house, which is, like, sort of a brothel. And it is about the most mundane aspects of their work. Like, and it's all takes place in there and they're like chatting with each other and like, no, you take that customer and like all this like stuff of like focusing on hands doing work and like just mundane stuff that you don't think of. It's the things that you do to make that like work happen. So it's like changing, changing towels in the bedrooms and like, yeah, yeah. so those two things actually kind of like pair well together (laughs) as a double feature. Mm. Well, I'm excited. I want to watch both of them. Um, Thank you so much, Charlotte, for spending your Sunday with us. And is there anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? 
No, I don't think so. This was so fun, though. Yay, Yay. I'm so glad. Thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah, you guys made it so easy to be on my very first podcast. Yay! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's our show. Um, I had such a fun time. Uh, I know Zoe's feeling like garbage, but I think we, you know, the Zoe and Laura hour, you know? Yes. It's yeah, how it is. That whole time you were like, who's this person with a really deep voice who I've never heard before? It's me, but I'm very <laughs> sick right now. You don't even sound that different, honestly. Really? Yeah. Well, one of my ears is clogged, but to myself, I my voice is very deep right now. No. I mean, okay. I hear you and I believe that is your perception, but it truly doesn't sound <laughs> that different. Thank you for not gaslighting me, but also thank you for the compliment. Yeah. <laughs> It's like I have done some emotional work on myself. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, as always, <laughs> you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, if you have not signed up to be a Patreon supporter, we're doing this thing right now that if you sign up for 420 or more a month before the end of March, we're going to do a super stoned episode for Patreon supporters only on 420. It's going to be super fun and super ridiculous. So if you've been dragging your feet on that, definitely sign up. Um, we have merch on our website. Uh, we have... You should rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. And yeah, if you're in Chicago or Philly, we're going to be at some events in those places in April. So uh, we'd love to meet you if you're like in or around either of those areas. And there will be more info on that coming down the pipes. Yep. (laughs) Ditto. (laughs) Okay, love you, Zoe. Love you, Laura. Bye. Bye.